We are in an eight-part sermon series entitled, One Another. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are commanded to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. That word that's translated stir one another can also be rendered spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The King James Version translates it as provoke one another towards love and good deeds. The word actually means to to stir, to instigate with sudden force. Now, for some of you, this is going to be your newfound favorite word. You're going to love the idea of stirring one another with sudden force. This morning, I want us to take a closer look at that powerful word. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read in your hearing verses 19 to 25. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll begin reading at verse 19. I'll conclude at verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. The letter of Hebrews was written to encourage believers in the face of persecution. It was written in the mid-60s of the first century to second-generation believers. I call them second-generation believers because the vast majority of them were not eyewitnesses to the life, death, ministry of Jesus. They came to faith based on the testimony of someone else. It's at this point that you have a lot in common with the original recipients of this Hebrew letter because you are not an eyewitness account of the life ministry of Jesus. You were not there when he was nailed to the cross, placed into a borrowed grave, and raised on the third day. But you have come to faith in Jesus Christ based on the testimony of someone else. Our brothers and sisters of the first century, these second generation believers found here in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, they were facing enormous persecution. They were persecuted simply because they were followers of the way. They were persecuted simply because they called themselves Christians. This persecution intensified under the rule and reign of Claudius. It was amped up even greater under the rule of Nero. Nero was a vicious ruler of the Roman Empire, and he targeted Christians for heavy taxation. They, their property was confiscated. Their stuff was stolen. Their families were torn apart. They lost their jobs. Any influence that they had was minimized. And some of them even lost their lives as they were thrown to the lions or the gladiators in the Colosseum. I mean, the persecution was enormous. This letter is written 
to encourage believers not to shrink back in the faith. You can well imagine, can't you? That in the face of that cultural climate, it was tempting, if not easy, to say, you know what? It's too dangerous for me to go to church. It's too dangerous for me to speak about Jesus. It's too dangerous for me to identify as a follower of Jesus. Because if I identify as one who belongs to Christ, then I will be blackballed. I'll be placed on a list. I will be the target of persecution, not just from people in my culture, but from my own government. And so there were many people who thought to themselves, it's too dangerous for us to go to church and be called a Christian. And this letter was written to encourage those believers. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Don't shrink back in the faith. And what the author is saying to the original audience, he's also saying to you and to me today. I want you to hear some of the encouraging words and statements that are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're found right there in our same chapter of Hebrews chapter 10. If you were to drop down to verse 32, you read words like these. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Do you hear the author encouraging the church, don't shrink back? If you were to drop down to the very last line of Hebrews chapter 10, which is verse 39, you would read something like this, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. If you're going to encourage Christians, the best example you can give them is Jesus I know that sounds like a Sunday school answer, but it is the right answer. If you're going to encourage Christians in the face of persecution and opposition, if you're going to encourage them to persevere to the very end, the best example you can give them is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why there are more than a few people who say the constant theme of the letter of the Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than. Anything. Jesus is greater than everything. So you walk through uh, the Hebrew letter, and in every chapter it seems that the author is telling us Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the priest. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than all of, 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 of the priests. He's greater than Melchizedek. He not only is uh, the perfect sacrifice, but he offers the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is greater than anything and everything. So you need to hang on and hold on because Jesus is greater. In our passage of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, the author gives us two outcomes of the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And then... He gives us three instructions on how we ought to live in light of those two outcomes. So the first outcome is given in verses 19 and 20. The second outcome is given in verse 21. And then in verses 22, 23, and 24, you're given three instructions on how you ought to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So revisit with me verses 19 and 20 of our passage. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Here's the first outcome. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we now have access to God. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, we now have access to God. We have access to God at any time, any place, for any reason. We have access to God and it's through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have access to God Almighty. Now when you hear about the author writing about the holy place, there are many of you who understand exactly what he's talking about because both in the tabernacle and the temple, In that construction, in the very center of it, was called the holy place. In the very middle of that holy place was called the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell. For it was believed that that's where God resided. The Ark of the Covenant was called the footstool of God. It was believed that God was with his people right there in the holy of holies. He rested between the cherubim on the mercy seat, which is the upper lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the only one who ever had access to God in the Holy of Holies was the high priest. And the only time the high priest could go in and gain access with God was one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, that great high holy festival... The high priest would make a sacrifice for himself for all of his sins. He would take a bath so that his body would be clean, so that symbolically he's clean on the inside and the outside. He would also make sacrifices on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. And he would enter through that curtain, that thick curtain that divided the people of God from the God of the people. He would go through that curtain once a year, every year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and around his waist would be tied a rope. The reason was because if he went in there and the sheer presence of the holiness of God struck him dead, then the attending priest would have to pull him out by that rope because nobody else had access to God. Nobody else could go through that curtain except the high priest. In addition to having a rope tied around his waist, he also had a a basin of of blood from the sacrificed animal. And he would take that basin into that most holy place. He would use a hyssop plant. He would sprinkle the mercy seat of God with some of that blood. Then he would also come back out under the satisfaction of that sacrifice. He would come back out, stand in front of all the people, the entire nation of Israel, and he would sprinkle blood upon them. And there sins would be pushed off and covered for one more year. And the righteous wrath of God that should be meted out against sinful humanity would be pushed off one more year until the following year when the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, would happen again. And this was Israel's history year in and year out. But do you recall that when Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when he was sacrificed... When he was crucified on the cross, it is Matthew who tells us that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Symbolic that God was saying, by this action of Jesus, 
I have instigated this. It originates from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom up, but from the top to the bottom. The curtain has been ripped open. Therefore, people have access to God based on the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In our passage of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, the author calls the body of Christ the curtain through which we go to gain access to God. That the torn curtain is symbolic of the broken body of our Lord, the shed blood of Jesus. And because of his broken body and his shed blood, we have access to God. And this access to God is through Jesus Christ. And we can go to God anytime, for any reason, for any purpose under heaven. We can go to him. We have access to God Almighty because by faith we go through his body, the, the ripped curtain. We go through his ripped body and by faith we believe that he is our access to God Almighty. Do you hear why he's saying this? In your cultural context of thinking about shrinking back from the faith, don't you dare do it because you have access to God anytime. When the adversary comes against you, when the enemy comes against you, when the government stands against you, when persecution comes at you, you can go to God anytime for any reason because you have access to God through Jesus Christ. So one of the outcomes of Calvary is that everyone who believes upon Jesus is saved, yes, and in that salvation, they've been given access to God in Jesus Christ. Now here the author calls the work of Jesus a new and living way. You may recall that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And here the author says that Jesus, who is the way, he is a new way. He is a living way. The word new can best be understood as freshly slaughtered. It is new in the sense that it's as fresh today as it's ever been. So the author is writing to people who are living 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And even though they were not eyewitnesses to Calvary, the author is telling them, your salvation through the broken body of Jesus, through his shed blood, it is just as fresh and powerful today as the day he was crucified. It is just as powerful in this moment today as it's ever been because the blood of Jesus never loses its power. Don't we sing that all the time? That the blood of Jesus never loses its power. His power does not have a shelf life. His power is not antiquated. His power does not get out of date. His power never grows stale. It is always fresh. He's always powerful. The access that he accomplishes to God through faith in Jesus Christ, it is always there for all of us who believe. Jesus is a new way. He is a fresh way. It is just as fresh today, 2,000 years later, as it was the day the thief on the cross believed. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ today, you have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power has not diminished. That power has not waned over the years. It is just as fresh, it is just as powerful today as it's ever been. It is a new, fresh way. But not only is it new and fresh, it is a living way. The author is just reminding the church, hey, Jesus, though he was in the tomb, he ain't dead. Because on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He is a living sacrifice. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? A living sacrifice? You think of it as a sacrifice, it's dead. 
But Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He's been raised from the dead. In fact, the apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 12 that we are to be living sacrifices. For we are to offer up our lives unto the Lord as an act of worship, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. That we are to be like Jesus in the sense that we are a living sacrifice. And we know people who are breathing, but they're not living, right? We know people who are breathing, but they're not living because the only way to have a living life is to have life in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our access to God. He provides access to God Almighty for us that we can get to God anytime, any place, for any reason, and it's all because of the accomplished work of Jesus. One of the outcomes of his work at Calvary's cross is that you have access to God. The second one is given to us in verse 21. For the author says that Jesus is the great priest over the house of God. So not only does Jesus give you access to God, but secondly, Jesus is our advocate before God. He is the great priest. Now between the days of Aaron and 70 AD, and I say 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed, Between the years that spanned the ministry of Aaron and 70 AD, Israel had 83 high priests. And none of those high priests were ever given the title a great high priest except Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's ever been given the title great high priest. He's not just a good priest, he's a great priest. He's not just a high priest, he's a great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, we are told that since we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us, for he was tempted in every way just as we are, the difference is that he was without sin. Therefore, let us approach his throne of grace with confidence, knowing that he can help us in our time of need. We have an advocate in Jesus, and he gets us. We have an advocate in Jesus, and he understands us. We have an advocate, we have a high priest, he's a great high priest. We have an advocate in Jesus who not only gives us access to God, but he stands in our defense before God, and he says, I know what you're going through, I've experienced what you've experienced. The difference is, there are many times that you sin, and Jesus never sinned. So he is our perfect advocate. I don't know about you, but Uh, that encourages me uh, to realize that the one who is standing in my defense, the one who is my advocate before God Almighty, is perfect in every way, and he understands me and you completely. He knows what we're going through. He knows how we feel. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to face temptation of every kind. And the difference is he always overcame the temptation. He was always victorious. I want an advocate like that. I want one who is always successful, always victorious, and that's the advocate that we have in Jesus. So what did Jesus do for you on the cross? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19, 20, and 21, there are two outcomes of the work of Christ. Number one, Jesus gives you access to God, and this access is fresh, never loses its power, it's living. This access is for you any time, any moment, any day. So he has given you access to God Almighty. And secondly, he is your great high priest who is your advocate. So because of those two outcomes, the author of our passage will say, I want you to do three things. 
In verse 22, I want you to draw near to God with confidence. And then uh, in verse 23, he'll say, I want you to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And then in verse 24, he says, I want you to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. For a few moments, let's just walk through those three things that we we ought to do in light of the two outcomes of who Jesus is, that he is our access to God and our advocate before God. So first and foremost, the author says that uh, we are to draw near to God with confidence. Now, why do we draw near to God with confidence? Well, the author just simply writes, because our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of the Lord. Our guilt has been removed. Our bodies are clean as if we've been cleansed with pure water. Friends, I got to tell you, the greatest experience on planet earth is the experience of salvation. There is no greater experience than salvation. Can you name me anything that's better than all of your sins, past, present, and future, being forever forgiven by the blood of Christ? Can you imagine anything better than you having divine access to God all the time, anytime? Can you imagine anything better than Jesus, the resurrected Lord, being your advocate? Can you imagine anything better than Jesus promises that he's going home to to make a place for you and when it's ready, he'll come back and get you? Can you imagine anything better than Jesus giving you the ability to breathe and to move and to testify to him and to do his work and live his purpose in this world. Can you imagine anything that's better than the experience of salvation? And what happened in salvation? Well, the author is using the same imagery as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Your hearts have been sprinkled by the blood. It's not only that your garments are sprinkled, because if you were in the nation of Israel, And every year when the high priest successfully offered a sacrifice and he came out of the Holy of Holies and you stood there waiting for him, he would come out and in victory, he would sprinkle you with the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And it would rest on your garments and it would stain your garments and you wanted it to stain your garments because it was symbolic that you were covered under the blood. But the author of our text says, listen, It's greater than your garments being stained with the blood. Your heart has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So he has has sprinkled you from the inside out, thoroughly giving you salvation from the inside out. And not only that, but also he's removed your guilt. The Lord said to Isaiah, "Um, see this live coal has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah was aware of his sin. He was a man of unclean lips. He lived among a people of unclean lips and his eyes had seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And the Lord commanded one of those six-winged angels to take a live coal from the altar of God, that place of forgiveness, and with it to touch Isaiah's lips. And the Lord said, first and foremost, Isaiah, I'm gonna remove your guilt And then your sin is also going to be covered or atoned. So when God forgives you, friend, he not only covers over the dirty deed of your past, but he also removes the guilt that's associated with that. That's a hallelujah moment. 
for us to realize that our sin has been covered, not just what we've done, but the guilt that's associated with what we've done. The author of our passage says that, that we draw near to God in confidence because our hearts have been sprinkled and our guilt has been removed and our bodies have been washed with pure water. The high priest would take a bath and he, he would wash and in hopes of, of being cleansed and clean before the Lord. But, but here the author says that, that we are cleansed. We are cleansed. We're not the high priest, yet we have access to God. We are not the high priest, yet we have an advocate before God. And because of what that advocate has done, we have a clean body. We are thoroughly clean from now until forevermore. Therefore, we draw close to God in confidence. This is why I can, I can agree with Horatio Spafford, who said, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Because of who Jesus is, he is the one who gives us access to God. He is our advocate before God. Because of that, we draw near to God in confidence. Because what can the world do to us if we have Christ? What can the world take away from us of eternal significance? What harm and damage can a persecuted culture level against us if we have access to God and an advocate before God. Therefore, we can approach him with confidence. Secondly, he says, we ought to hold unswervingly to the faith that we profess. We ought to hold unswervingly. The word hold, it means to cling or to clutch. We are to cling or to clutch. We are to hold unswervingly. It's not that we just hold to the hope that we profess, but we hold unswervingly to that hope. We do not deviate from the right or to the left. We hold unswervingly. We cling and we clutch to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because nothing can knock us off point. Nothing can take it away from us. Nothing can snatch it out of our grasp because the one that we are grasping onto is the one who's grasping onto us. We cling, we clutch, we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Whenever I think about this imagery, I'm reminded of a story. It's a story I've told you before, but that's okay because some of you have told me the same story more than once, so I'm going to tell you the same story more than once. It's a great story. It's a story of my grandfather, a grandfather that I loved dearly. I emulated him. I wanted to be just like him. He wore a leather jacket, so I wanted a leather jacket. He drove down the road with his arm hanging out the window. I rode down the road with my arm hanging out the window. He drank his coffee out of a Dunkin' Donuts cup. I drank my Coca-Cola out of a Dunkin' Donuts cup. He had a tattoo of the American flag on his arm. I wanted a tattoo of the American flag on my arm. I mean, I wanted everything just like my grandfather. And one year when I was about eight years old, my grandparents took us grandchildren to an amusement park. And it is there that we walked up and we noticed and saw that steel contraption of torture called the octopus. It is there that my grandfather saw that and I understood it as a, as a, as a child torture chamber is really what I thought it was. And, and I was there and I was, I was slender, I was knobby-kneed, I, I was tall, I was slim, and, and I said, Granddad, there is no way I'm getting on that. And he said, I'll go with you. 
And the only way I got on that ride is because granddaddy said he would go with me. I'm assuming there were probably uh, eight steel bars that protruded from this octopus. After all, it's named octopus. So I guess there were eight arms that came out. At the end of each of those arms was a little cart that you and your friend were supposed to sit in. And as the arms revolved around at warp speed, then the cart would spin at a very high rate as it was spinning around. And so my grandfather and I got in that cart. They strapped us in. They pulled down the bar. And here we go. Now, I need to tell you, my grandfather is a very large man. And when centripetal force is in full effect, a scrawny, knobby-kneed eight-year-old boy is smashed against the side of that cart. And I'm smashed against the cart, and all I can do is hold on to his arm, the arm that is bearing the American flag tattooed on it, and that tattooed flag is flapping against my cheeks. And all the while, I'm pleading for my granddaddy to make this ride stop, and he, com- and he tells me in a convincing fashion, it will stop soon! And eventually when it does stop, they have to get the jaws of life to come and unprime me off of the flesh of the arm of my grandfather. Every time I think about holding unswervingly, that's the image that comes to my mind. It's to clutch with such force that there is no way that anything is going to let loose of you. You are not going to let go, holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Why is the author writing this to a bunch of Christians in the first century? Because some of them were thinking about letting go of the hope they profess. They were thinking that they just might shrink back in the face of persecution. They were thinking that it might just be too dangerous to go to church. They were thinking that it might be too dangerous to speak up loudly for Jesus. And the author of our passage says, you hold unswervingly to the hope you profess. And the way you can hold on is because you know that he being God is holding on to you. It it is not that you have faith in your ability to cling and to clutch onto Christ. No, your faith is in the one who is giving the promise. For the author says he is faithful. The one who gives the promise is faithful. He will hold you. He will keep you. He will clutch you as you clutch unto him. You hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. It is Edward Mote who wrote my favorite hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and His Righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Everything else in this world will get us off point except for our hope in the accomplished work of Jesus. So because Jesus is our access to God and because Jesus is our advocate before God, then we, number one, we draw close to God with confidence. Number two, we hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And number three, we stir one another up towards love and good deeds. The author begins by saying, consider carefully one another. So we have to think seriously about each other. Christianity is not an isolated religion. You can't go at it alone. We need each other. 
So we have to consider carefully one another. We've got to consider carefully how we interact with each other, how we deal with one another, how we encourage one another, how we help each other along their journey of faith. We've got to consider carefully one another. We've got to consider how we can spur one another on, stir one another up, provoke one another towards love and good deeds. Interesting word. It is a word that means to stir. It's a word that means to to agitate, to instigate with sudden force. It is a passionate word. It is a word that demands results. We, we stir each other up and, and we stir each other up unto obedience, unto holiness, unto faithfulness, unto the one who's faithful to us. It's a passionate word. It's not a, not a, not a meek word. It's not a mild word. It's one that describes how we engage each other and we're so passionate about Christ that that it's a sudden force that we instigate one another. We stir one another up to obedience. Ironically, it's the same word that Luke uses in Acts to describe the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were about to go on their second missionary journey, and, and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. But John Mark had bailed. Um, on the first missionary journey, and the apostle Paul said, ain't no way, I'm not taking him. He's a mama's boy. I ain't gonna take him on this second missionary journey. It's just too tough. And Barnabas said, no, no, we need to take him. And Paul said, I am not taking him. And so how it's described is there was a sharp disagreement. It's, this is the word. It was, they, they were agitated with each other. It stirred up sudden emotion from each other. Now, the result of that is that uh, Paul took Silas on the second missionary journey. Barnabas uh, went with John Mark, and, and they actually divide and conquered, and they doubled their territory. But, but still, though, they had this division. This is a passionate word. And so here, the author of the Hebrew text tells us that, that we ought to consider each other carefully and how we can stir one another up. And the reason we stir one another up is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Because we stir one another up because Jesus is our access to God. He's our advocate before God. And in light of that, we've got to stir each other up towards love and good deeds. Now that sounds good, but what are the good deeds that we're supposed to stir one another up to do? There's only one example given in this text. It's the example of let us not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage each other all the more until you see the day approaching. We're supposed to stir one another up. Because in that context, some of those believers were saying it is too dangerous for us to go to church. And so they stopped coming to church. They stopped gathering in worship. They, they began to shrink back in their evangelistic zeal and fervor. They began to kind of acquiesce to the government. They begin to back away from their ministry. Uh, they were just going to kind of go along and get along, and they thought to themselves, well, surely this will pass. And they just thought it was just too dangerous to go to church. And the only example that we're given in this passage of what it means to stir one another up is that we ought not to allow people to forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But we ought to encourage each other under obedience all the more as you see the day approaching. So we ought to encourage one another 
in church attendance. We ought to stir one another up towards church involvement. We ought to agitate each other, activate one another, instigate with sudden force among one another. Hey, we need you in this body of believers. We, we need you to be actively involved here. It's not something passive that we talk about, but it's actively something that we do. So we have to stir one another up so people don't just stop going to church. I think about this passage in light of our context. And over the last couple of years, there have been people who have said it's just too dangerous to go to church, right? I, I, I can't come to church. It's, it's just too dangerous for me to come to church. And when I hear that and, and when I sense that and when I see that, my mind goes back to this passage where, where, the, where the author says we, we ought to stir one another up so that we don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So we ought to encourage one another, stir one another up. Now, I know there's a little bit of uh, hesitancy when I unleash you to go stir one another up uh, because I, I know some of you, and, and I know that some of you are sitting there thinking, yes, now I can nail somebody to the wall. Now I can blast them in the name of Jesus. No, this is not a recipe for being rude. Nowhere in the Bible does it give us permission to be rude. But we are to be challenging one to another. I mean, can you look around this room and see people who are not here that used to be here that need to be here? We need to stir them so they will not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We, we need to encourage them to come. We need to tell them that we miss them and it's important for them to come. And we need to stir them so that they will see and say, you know what? I cannot neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Some people have asked me, how often do you expect people to come to church? And if you've been in discovery class, you, you've heard me say that our expectation is 75% of the time. That three out of four Sundays of the month we expect you to be uh, engaged in worship service. And people look at me, and um, I realize that not very many of our faith family meet or surpass that expectation of 75%. But it still doesn't diminish the goal that that's our bar that we've set, 75%. But even as I say that, I think to myself, boy, that, that's really not the gold standard, is it? Because let me ask it this way. If you are faithful to your spouse three out of four weeks of the month, are you really faithful to your spouse? If you're obedient to three out of four traffic laws, are you really a good driver? If you work three out of four weeks of the month, will you be employed very long? If Jesus forgives only three out of four of your sins, are you really forgiven? So I just, I just say that just to realize that, that even though that standard of, of, of 75%, it, it, it does seem a little low, because Jesus deserves more than that. But I do want you to hear that the author of this text says, uh, let's not neglect meeting together. Let's meet together even in the face of persecution. Let's meet together even in the face of opposition. Let's meet together even if the government is against us. Let's meet together. This is what the author is saying. He is not saying, let's meet together unless it's not convenient for you. 
Let's meet together unless there's COVID. Let's meet together unless it's rainy outside. Let's meet together unless Sally Snowflake gets her feelings hurt. Let's meet together unless you're not getting anything out of it because really you're a problem maker instead of a problem solver. Let's meet together unless you got something else better to do. The text does not say, let's meet together unless there's something else for you to do. No, it says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Can any of us debate that the day of the Lord is approaching? I mean, we look around and we see the day of the Lord is sooner and sooner and sooner than ever before. We look around our world, we look around our culture, uh, country and culture, surely the day of the Lord is upon us. And the author of this text says, let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So in this passage, because of who Jesus is, he is our access to God, he is our advocate before God, we draw near to God with confidence. We uh, hold unswervingly to the faith and hope that we profess, and we stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Let me tell you, when it comes to stirring up, uh, this is not stirring up. Um, hey, hey, friend, I've seen that you haven't been in church for, you know, like the last uh, two years. And, um, and if, if it's possible, if you don't mind, if, if, if it's convenient for your schedule, if, if you don't have anything else better to do, uh, it, it, it may it'd be okay if you just think about, maybe possibly, perhaps, uh, if you could consider maybe just coming to church, you know, kind of when, whenever you can, whenever you, you, you want to. Is that is okay? I, mean, I, I don't want to be offensive. I just, I'm just here to stir you up. Friends, that is not an example of the biblical stirring up. Here, here's the example of a biblical stirring up, and I, I, I cringe even as I do this, but this is what it means. It means uh, you go to your brother and your sister and say, hey, look, uh, you're part of this faith family. You haven't been here consistently for the last two years. What is your problem? Get off your keister. Get your family to church. Stop being lazy. Stop being indifferent. Stop being insensitive to the things of God. You are a valuable part of this faith family. You need to get back here. Now that is more in line of the stirring up versus the previous example. You don't have to be rude about it, but you do have to be challenging about it. And why do we do this? Because of who Jesus is. And what he's done for us. Now, in this passage, uh, the only example that's given is about church attendance. And, and we could say, well, well, why do we need to attend church? Well, I've asked people that question. And I get a myriad of answers. And quickly, let me share with you some of the answers that I've get, uh, received when I ask the question, why do you come to church? Or why do you need to come to church? People have said things like this. I need it. Jesus commands me to. It helps me to get refocused. It helps me to get refueled. Uh, I get fed spiritually. I realize that I'm not alone in my stage of life when I gather with other believers. There are times that I realize that not only um, does somebody need me, but I need them. And I realize that, you know what? I, I help somebody else in their faith by my presence and by my ministry there. And still others, some have told me, look, families get together on special days and Sunday is our special day and we are a family of God. Why do you come to church? Maybe you would give those answers. Maybe you give a myriad of other answers. Can I just tell you why I come? I come because, let me borrow the words of the hymn writer, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. 
I need to come here because it's true. I can meet with God any place, anytime, anywhere. I can meet with him for any reason, but there's something powerful about coming in God's house on God's day with God's people. You bolster my faith. I hope that at some point along the journey that I help bolster your faith, but I promise you that seeing you worship, sensing your worship, knowing that God's favor is here, I promise you that you are bolstering my faith. I come because I need thee and I need you. I come because it's beneficial to my faith. I come because I'm empty if I don't come. I'll come because I need to come. I wonder, why do you come to church? It ought to take uh, the National Army to keep us from coming to church because we say, you know what? I gotta have it. As air is to breathing, I've got to be with my people on God's day. So today, maybe you look around and you see somebody who's not here, who needs to be here, used to be here. And maybe this week you just need to be released to stir them up. Don't be rude. Don't let me get a bunch of emails, all right? Don't let me get a bunch of emails. But you need to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Obedience in church attendance and involvement. Obedience under the things of God. And maybe there's somebody here who's never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, today you can receive that gift and Jesus can give you access to God and Jesus can be your advocate before God. If you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, please, it's a free gift. Receive it by faith. As soon as we sing a song, ministers will be here. If that's you, brother, sister, then you need to come Take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need that salvation. Maybe you're here today and you are a Christian, but you just need to pray. Maybe you need to confess sin unto the Lord. I know you can do it in your seat, but maybe you want to do it here. Maybe you want to come and pray for somebody else, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a classmate. Maybe you need to come and join this church. Whatever it is that God is dealing in your heart right now, use this invitation for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help us as we appropriately stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Help us to be obedient to you and the stirring of your spirit upon our spirit. Father, help us to follow you in obedience. Lord, please have your way in this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.